This morning we're going to be in John chapter 19, finishing up the chapter, starting in verse 23. And when we looked the last time, I, I really tried to divide the chapter into two parts. Um, the trials that led up to the crucifixion, and now we're going to speak about the crucifixion itself. But from a worldly perspective, from the disciples' perspective, our hero, they're, they're running him through the system, it's not fair, they're beating him up, they're, they're whipping him, they're sending him to the cross. However, from a scriptural and a prophetic perspective, everything was working like clockwork, down to the very details of what the soldiers did, you know, the crown of thorns, the beatings, the whippings, amazing when you really start to look at, at this. Now, uh, what we're going to do is look at the crucifixion. What did the crucifixion accomplish, if anything? And if the crucifixion did accomplish something, and it accomplished it in our lives, then shouldn't there be naturally a change in our lives? So probably by the end of the sermon, as we look at the events of the crucifixion and what it did, the substitutionary death for our sins, he died in our place, he was judged for those sins so we wouldn't have to be, so we would have eternal life. I think we all need to ask ourselves at the end of this, is my life changed? Has it changed? Have I received the Holy Spirit? Has the Holy Spirit been moving me in a certain goal, away from the goal that I had when I was in the world? So we'll jump into that. So verse 23, it says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, now here, if you have a study Bible, it'll be italicized, Psalm 22:18, written close to a thousand years before this event. It says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Listen, I can't even predict the weather tomorrow, and usually... The weatherman can't either. <laughs> Most of the, sometimes they get it right, sometimes they don't. But they have meteorology and they track the storms, so there's a good chance they can get it right. That's prophecy. You're prophesying something, an event that's going to happen in the future. Now you take a, a, a prophecy like this about the crucifixion and speak about the soldiers tearing at his clothes, taking his sandals, getting whatever they can, and then rolling the dice for that one-piece tunic. And this was written a thousand years before it happened. Cultures change. Languages change. Everything changes. The geology changes. The landscape changes. Politics change. And God is so specific about his... No other holy book ever made has done what the Bible has done. So pretty impressive. So here's this perk, unfortunately, that these soldiers get. It's a gruesome detail. Day in and day out, they stand there and they hear the screams of the crucifixion victims. And they, you know, the blood is spurting and the, the, the birds of prayer are perching on them to try to peck their flesh. And it's a disgusting detail. So apparently one of the perks for the soldiers is that they get to take the victim's clothing or whatever their belongings are instead of giving it to the loved ones. So this is what these guys are doing. On a side note, there are some that take the scripture out of context. And I'm going to cover probably two false doctrines with you this morning. The one is because Jesus, it's one part of one verse, that he had a seamless tunic, that he must have been wealthy. And you've heard this, this prosperity gospel. Here's the problem. 
they discount the rest of what the Bible says. Be careful of anyone who takes the scripture out of context. Mary and Joseph, when Jesus was born, they had to offer a sacrifice for Jesus, and I believe it was two turtle doves. That's a poor man's sacrifice. Jesus said, the foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Apostle Paul was a vagabond and a laborer, which was looked down on in that culture. It's possible that a, a, a dear saint knitted it for him. She wove it as, a, as an, a blessing or a gift to him. I don't think it was a Versace or a Michael Kors, you know. I don't think it had MK embroidered all over it. It was just the one-piece tunic. So be careful of these weird doctrines that are out there. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Taking all the Gospels together, which I love doing, to me, you know, you just put all four of them together and you, you look at the different perspectives from the different writers and you really have this beautiful picture, this beautiful mosaic. Whereas there's a tile here, there's a tile there, and the tiles don't mean much when you look at them, but when you put them together, they make this beautiful tapestry. So this is, you bring all the Gospels together and Jesus said seven things that are recorded on the cross and we're going to go through that. I grouped them into two categories. Number one is altruistic, benevolent, or other-centered utterances. And the second one, the last four, are mission-oriented utterances, having to specifically do with the John 3.16 mission. So let's look at the first group, altruistic. Now this is really remarkable when you realize that when you and I go through something really difficult, you know, we've got really bad back pain, we're, we're really struggling financially, and we go to prayer, who's the first person we usually pray for? All right, honesty, I like that. <laughs> Lord, help me. You know, that's like the first one out there. Oh, yeah, and everybody else in church too, but right now, focus on me, you know what I'm saying? Not Jesus. In his worst time, he focused on others. He wasn't focused on himself. The first thing he says in Luke 23, 34 is, and I try to put this in chronological order, in time order, to the best that I could. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Could you imagine the religious leaders there insulting him, the people passing by, or some sadistic people? It was, it was in a public area, so there's some sadistic people that went by and liked to look, which some Americans would probably look at it too, blood sport. Um, you had the Roman soldiers, and I bet you could hear a, a pin drop when Jesus looked up to the Father and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Did he just say what I think he said? We're going to see that the centurion's life changes. That um, the people who are at the cross, they start to change because they hear this. It melted their hearts, some of them. The robbers crucified on either side. One of them changes and has a conversion experience. And I believe specifically that part of it had to do with what he said right here. Now, the other, you've got you to paint this picture in your mind. 
these people were, they were already dying. They hated the Romans. They were spitting, they were cursing, they were reviling, they were angry, they were cream, screaming, crying. Imagine what you would go through being crucified. Where Jesus says, his Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And everybody's like, what? How could he say that? He taught us how to love our enemies. And sometimes when we love our enemies, it melts their hearts. Okay? The second thing that Jesus said this is what happens. In, in Luke 23, 42 through 43, so we're in Luke again. The two criminals, and this is speculation that Jesus took the place really of Barabbas. Remember when they let Barabbas go? Some speculate because there were two robbers that it was supposed to be Barabbas's band of three, and he's crucified between his two friends, but the people take Barabbas out of the crucifixion and put Jesus into it. So the ro robbers are originally reviling Jesus. They're insulting him. And they're saying, hey, do us a favor. Why don't you get yourself off the cross? And while you're at it, take us off too. You know, nobody wants to be up here. If you're really who you say you are, do it. Well, one of the robbers has a change of heart. Something happens while he's being crucified. And he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is fascinating. Jesus says to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, it's quite possible that that guy was the first person that got into heaven. I mean, what was his name? Ben? You know, will we go up there and say, hey, look, here's Ben. He's the first person to get into heaven, and he was on the cross. Pretty impressive. Hey, let me shake Ben's hand. But this guy gets the promise of paradise when? That day. Another unbiblical doctrine that's out there is the doctrine of soul sleep. And I don't know why this, there's any benefits. And I know there's some doctrines that have benefits to the people who preach them. It's a, it's a flesh-centered benefit. But that teaches that basically when you die and if you're a believer, you kind of take a dirt nap. You know, you're in the ground and time passes. And if you're that guy who they took off the cross and you're sleeping, your soul is sleeping, at some point a few thousand years later, God's going to wake you up and say, hey, wake up, wake up, it's time to get up. Wow, I, I think I, I slept for like 2,000 years. Talk about, he's got nothing on Rip Van Winkle. But soul sleep teaches this bizarre doctrine. Now, the Apostle Paul, in addition to this, in 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, like that. Right? In the blink of an eye. So when you take the fact that the man who was on the cross when he died, that robber was going to go right into paradise with the Lord. You know what that eliminates too? Coming to the church for salvation, having to do good works, having to get baptized. Jesus made a promise to that man that he was going to be with him that day. That day. And I'll tell you this, there's going to be no sleeping when we die. There's going to be no delays. There's not going to be long lines. There's not going to be any screening by the TSA. You're just going to get right to heaven. You're good as gold. The third point, in John 19, which we just read, Jesus said to his mother, and we believe John the disciple, he says, woman, behold your son, and to the disciple he said, behold your mother. Now Joseph must have been dead at this point, it's probably a good speculation there, for him to take his earthly mother and put him in a home where she was going to be taken care of. But there's another concept at work here, whether we're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, the concept that God puts us in families. Now, I know some who have been adopted and they struggle with that and they look to find their biological parents and that's fine. 
However, I've been adopted too. According to John 1.12, I was adopted into God's family when I believed on Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That's awesome. Hey, listen, I'll take that new family. I'm good with that. And what's really neat too is that there's this concept of discipleship and mentorship. When I was a new believer, my parents weren't saved. And it was... Uh, <laughs> some of you know Pastor Luis. <laughs> He's going to be coming in two Sundays from now. He discipled me and, you know, it was hard discipleship. I mean, he really gave it to me at times but he's like a spiritual dad to me in a sense and I have a few of them grandparents uh, fathers and then as you get older in the Lord you have spiritual children and grandchildren so this is so neat how God puts us in families and my wife and I've been blessed over the years to have spiritual parents and spiritual children so God puts us in families now the second category is mission-oriented utterances which are also altruistic in nature but it's basically John 3.16, the nuts and bolts of John 3.16. So the fourth thing that Jesus said, and some struggle with this, and we're going to try to make sense of it, in Matthew 27, now we're going to Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, while he's on the cross, says, and he completely fulfills Scripture, Psalm 22.1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some say, why would he say that? Did he not know? Sure he knew. Number one, I believe that these were said so that they could be recorded for our benefit. Number two, he fulfilled scripture. Number three, he was making sure that we understood the gravity of the situation and how offensive and loathsome our sin is that we took God, separated the Father and the Son, put the Son on the cross, and he had to be accused of the things that I did in my life, not fair for him and you, and everyone else who came before you, and everyone else who will come after you, to take that sin, to take that shame on that cross. So the son, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he upset? I'm sure he was. But I submit to you that the father was upset too. Don't believe me? In Matthew's gospel, it said there was an earthquake. There was darkness on the land for three hours. People came up out of their graves, okay? And the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. When God told Moses, make sure you make that thing strong. I don't want that thing ripping or coming down. There can't be any, any light between the holy of holies and the holy place. And God himself tears it and opens it up. So the father, I believe, was upset as well. And there's some things that go along with that. I believe that Jesus expresses the gravity of the situation. Count the cost, he always said. Before you follow me, count the cost. Now our salvation cost us nothing because it cost Jesus everything. Our salvation cost us nothing, but our walk should cost us something. If we're really walking with the Lord, there will be consequences. There will be sacrifice. There will be things that we could have done that we don't do. There will be opportunities that are missed. Our salvation cost us nothing, but our walk should cost us something. The fifth thing he said is, I thirst. If you look at Psalm 22:15 and some of Psalm 69, and we're going to go through Psalm 22 a little bit later, um, this is also a fulfillment of Scripture just by him saying that. I'm, I'm thirst. I need some parchment or I need some uh, hydration. Now, we, we can look for a, a holy golden nugget in every single thing Jesus said. Sometimes he just said things to communicate. I'm sure there were times where he said, I'm tired, I need to go to sleep. He might have said, I'm hungry. I don't know if we can find anything real grandiose in that, but 
it's quite possible that his thirst needed to be quenched because he just barely blurted it out because he was so dry. And I'll talk about the medical significance of what was going on here, that he needed to be uh, hydrated so that he could say the last two utterances, which were even more important. So that brings us to the sixth one. He says, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai. means it has been accomplished or the debt has been paid in full. It's an accounting term. What debt? Well, it's the debt of sin that we all owe. And if our, our debt of sin is not dealt with, we don't get to see the Father. We don't get to heaven. So Jesus took that upon himself. I want to turn to Isaiah 53, starting with verse 4. Again, this was written, Isaiah had a very long ministry. So this was written, depending on when he said it, somewhere between 700 and 800 years before Jesus. Again, I could see these prophets, and, and Peter alludes to this, where the prophets are, all right, God, they're writing it down. You're sure? Exactly. No problem. And they're looking at it like, it looks Russian to me. I don't understand it. I can't figure this out. Well, it wasn't for that prophet to figure it out. It was for later on for the people to, be, to see the power of God because these prophecies came true. So here he is, Isaiah 53, verse 4, about Jesus. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the Father has laid on the Son, the iniquity, the sin of us all. When you think about how far back that was written, that really is mind-blowing. Jump to 10. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify, we're justified, many, for he shall bear their iniquities or their sins. How many times does he have to repeat that? How can we not see that this is a direct fulfillment of Scripture? We have to see that. Leviticus 17.11. I don't know where this whole idea with Judaism and Christianity started where if you do enough good works, you're going to get into heaven. Leviticus 17.11, which is, hasn't been undone, God said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. He needs, sin demands a blood sacrifice, and Jesus fulfilled that. I'm going to refer to three other scriptures, and then we'll move on to the next utterance. In Romans 6.10, 1 Peter 3.18 and Hebrews 9.28, it said that Jesus died once. It said he made one sacrifice for all time, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Why is it in some brands of Christianity does the church say, no, 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 Jesus, you got it all wrong. It's mostly finished. See, you did about 98% of it. Give us 2% because we need to be relevant. 
You don't get saved through this church. You don't get saved through this message. You get saved because of what Jesus Christ did for you. He said the debt has been paid in full. And sometimes the church comes in and says, well, you've got to do, you've got to give us money. You've got to make sacraments through the church. You've got to do good works. Jesus said it is finished. We do, we give, we're generous, we do good works because we're so elated about what God did in our lives that we want to do these things. They have it backwards. It's be first, then do, not do so that, so that you can be. Okay, we've got to get that straight. The seventh point, the seventh thing that he said, and he must have been exhausted at this point. Luke 23, 46, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, and he breathed his last. What does this tell us? That Jesus didn't die from his injuries. Have you never heard that before? It wasn't the crucifixion that killed him. The crucifixion was eventually going to kill his body. However, he gave up his spirit. He was done. It is finished. You see, Jesus, the Bible tells us, was the lamb. And we we know that. But sometimes what we forget is he was also the high priest. When the high priest took the sacrificial lamb, he controlled how it went. He officiated over it, and he decided when that sacrifice was completed. Jesus was the lamb, but he was also the high priest. And when the sins were transferred onto him, and he he just needed to die for those sins, there was no reason for him to be on the cross any longer. Jesus was in complete control. Hard to believe, but it's true. Psalm 22, if you turn there with me, the Psalm of the Cross. I'm going to read a few verses, starting in verse 12. Psalm 22:12. it says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths as a raging and roaring lion. This, most Bible scholars believe, is a spiritual reference. He says, 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. His, the bones were out of joint. Crucifixion was brutal. They stretched you. They, the, the shoulder could have been out of socket. The knees, I mean, they just were harsh. These people were going to die anyway. They didn't care. Not a bone was broken, but his, his bones were out of joint. My heart is like wax, and I'm going to get to that. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. This has to do with the, de- the, the dehydration factor in the crucifixion. For dogs, is always a, 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 a picture of evil people. For dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. That's impressive. That is really impressive. Now, this is when crucifixion... The Persians might have been using it at the time Psalm 22 was, was written. It wasn't a popular form of execution. It was adopted through different, um, if you look at history, through different civilizations over the years, but it was barely, nope, anyone barely knew about crucifixion. Here he speaks about the piercing, the nails getting driven through. So we find here that Jesus finally is crucified. Now when we take all the Gospels together, we find, and like I said before, there was an earthquake probably emblematic of judgment. In the book of Revelation, God is going to cause uh, seismic disturbances to continue uh, as for judgment. We see the three hours of darkness. 
I believe that was reflective of the evil and wicked hearts of mankind, men and women. Here's a mirror. Three hours, you're in total darkness. I spoke light into the world. I will spike, speak light out of the world for three hours. Sit in it. Tell me what you think about that. Now, hey, it's just the consequences of sin. God can do that. The veil of the temple in the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, and that was really high to do. It was a very thick, it was layers of, of thick material that God just, he tore it, he opened it up. What did that signify? It signified that no longer would there be a special class of priests that people could have access to God now. You didn't have to have a priest going into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling blood on the mercy seat and all that stuff. Jesus sprinkled his blood so that we could come directly to him. And the fourth thing is that the resurrected saints were, they were, appeared in the city. And I think that was a picture of hope. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. He led many to be resurrected in that period, and then there are other resurrections that will come. Um, now, you don't, you're, you're, are you a skeptic? Well, then just go around the first century, second century, and look at some of these non-believer, these secular uh, historians. We can look at Thallus, Phlegon, Africanus. They have funny names, but these guys existed back then. They wrote about the earthquake. They wrote about the darkness, and they were not believers if you read their writings. I actually have an article here, another article, that I had several months ago, and I said, oh, I'm going to save that for when we talk about the resurrection. It says, Bible-era earthquake reveals year of Jesus' crucifixion. This is in a secular publication. I'll make the copies of this, too, if you like. From geologists, they, the geological record shows that this earthquake happened in this time period. And it was significant enough for it to make an impression on the geological record. I like to keep this stuff for my skeptics. When you start looking at all these secular sources, in addition to the Bible, you can only come to one or two conclusions. Well, I, I'm not ready and I don't want to hear it. Or, okay, what do I have to do to be saved? Verse 25. The Bible records that many women were at the cross. And you know... A lot of the men chickened out, and a lot of the women were at the cross. But you know what? The women were treated so bad for so long, they were treated like nobodies in society, that they didn't care. Arrest me, lock me up, I really don't care. They were going to see their Lord till his very last breath. Because they were treated like nobodies in society, and God treated them like a somebody. God really loves me, I'm not second-class citizen. Now... We have missionaries that were in Afghanistan, now they're in Central America. They're going back to India, they're going to go to India, and they're going to minister to the Dalits. Any of you who are of Indian descent know what I'm talking about. Legally, the country allows these poor people, millions of them, to be treated almost like the bottom of your shoe. It's a caste system. You know what? The Dalits are coming to Christ so fast, it's astounding. Because they have nothing in this world. They're treated like garbage. And they're going, they're all crowding into the kingdom. The Hmong in, Viet, in Vietnam, we, we don't really see that much in America. I mean, there is forms of racism, but it's really bad in other countries. Just like those women at the cross, these people feel they've been held down so long and the, the world has given them nothing that they're, they're pouring into the kingdom of heaven. You're going to see a lot of them there. Verse 31, John 19. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain 
on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The, Jews, the Jewish leadership really here asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out, probably just to make sure that they were dead before they were taken off the cross. Kind of kills the whole swoon theory that skeptics speak about. And he who has seen this has testified, and his testimony is true. This is John speaking. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Psalm 34:20. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Zechariah 12 and 13:6. And again, another scripture says, "They shall look on him whom they have pierced." So, what's the issue here with the Jewish leadership? Well, Deuteronomy, the law, says that cursed is a man is the one who hangs on a tree. So sometimes the Jewish people have trouble with this. Well, he's accursed by God. Yes, so that you and I wouldn't be. You're right, cursed is Jesus who was hung on the tree. It also says in Deuteronomy 20, 21, 23 that, that the body should not be left there overnight, that it should be taken down. The concern for the religious leaders is that somebody would accidentally walk by or be defiled by a blood drop or sweat of a dead body and they would be defiled and they couldn't eat the Passover. They were so concerned about their ceremony that they didn't see the emblems behind their ceremony. They didn't see that they were willingly having their Passover the true Passover, crucified. So this is what's going on. Now, one of the ways to, to hasten the death so that they could take him off the cross was to take a sledgehammer-like tool because leg bones are pretty strong. And the crucifixion victim was held up probably a few feet higher than ground level. Uh, so as they raised them up, they would be looking up at them. So they'd have to take this sledgehammer-type instrument and smash their legs. What that would do is they would cause, I guess, a compound fracture or something, and then the person couldn't push up anymore to take a breath. So what would happen is they would, their legs were shot. They couldn't move them. There was no strength and support from the bones. So they would try to breathe, and they would just suffocate to death. Horrible, isn't it? I mean, and it was purposely made this horrible uh, to make sure that nobody defied Rome. A few things happen here. Jesus was already dead. He gave up his spirit. He separated himself. It was time. In verse 34, the soldier pierces the Lord's side and blood and water flow out, probably via the fifth rib, if you look at anatomy and physiology, probably through pleural and cardiac effusion, and, and we'll talk about that. I want to talk about right now the medical terminology. And John's not a doctor. Let's just get this straight. He's writing this gospel, and there's so much medical stuff in here, even before people really did mass uh, anatomies on cadavers. So check this out. It started out with the, with the whippings, with the blood loss, the, the piercing um, you know, through certain blood vessels, and you would have volume contraction or hypovolemia, which means you would lose blood. Now, when you lose enough blood, the circulation is lacking. So the heart compensates through tachycardia it really beats fast to try to get everything moving because it doesn't understand why there's you know this this lack of volume now when that happens usually there's kidney malfunction and failure so there's issues with with uh, taking the impurities out of out of the blood 
And there would be the, another um, consequence of that would be extreme thirst. Water is at a premium here, so it's not going to go to the mouth. So he says, I thirst, and he needs that fluid to, to rehydrate what's going on in his mouth. So you see what's going on here. And then you get this pleural and pericardial effusion. What would happen is the uh, water would build up, a clear fluid would build up around the pericardium, which surrounds the heart, and it would build up around the lungs. Now, again, the Romans were trained killers, so they would take these long spears. Remember, Jesus is higher than the soldier. It was tapered on the front with metal, and they would, they would see the fifth rib because they were professionals at killing. And they, he would take the spear and go right past that fifth rib. It would bust the sac of the pericardium and the sac around the, the lungs, and you would literally have red blood and clear fluid flowing down at the same time. John's a fisherman. He says, I don't know what I'm seeing, but all I see is blood and water flowing down. But we know many years later what that is. Isn't that impressive? <laughs> this is good stuff. But why do I say this? I say this because Jesus went through great depth to die for our sins so that we wouldn't have to stand in front of God accused. I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is that is there any room in a Christian's life for complaining and whining about your spouse asking you to pray before a meal? about your parents saying, no, I don't want you to do that because this is a Christian household, about getting up for church in the morning, 168 hours in a week, we can't devote, and, and I certainly hope that this is the icing on the cake, that we are praying during the week and we are reading our Bibles. It doesn't mean we have to read it, you know, five chapters every day, that's legalism, but we do it because, not because Pastor Joe said so, we do it because we love him and we're so thankful for what he's done in our lives. I hope and pray that as we read this, the sacrifices that we have to make, the changes that might occur, that we don't kick and scream, that we let it happen. Look what Jesus did for us. God could have just wiped us out and started all over again. He goes, you people are, he could have said, you, you guys are all idiots, you're all sinners. I'm going to do this way. I'm going to make somebody bend more towards doing what I say, and this, we won't have to go through this next time. He didn't. He went through great depths to redeem us. And I, I just pray that that would something that would really fill our hearts this morning. Before we close, I want to jump to um, verses 36 and 37. I did speak about Psalm 3420 about uh, he can count all his bones, no bones would be broken. Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 says that the Passover lamb, when it was killed, God said, you shall not break its bones. So Jesus fulfilled that as well. He was the Passover lamb. He died for our sins so that that death wouldn't come to us. It wouldn't come to our household. Zechariah 12.10 and 13.6, again, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And Isaiah 53, 9, in the New Living Translation, it says, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He never deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal, but he was put in a rich man's grave. And that's what we have. Now, in verse 35, John is testifying. I, John, saw these things. I can tell you it's true. I was right there. I watched the whole thing. However, there was somebody also who was there. He was a Roman, Roman centurion, which means he could have commanded a hundred men. So he wasn't just your average, you know, grunt. He was a sergeant or a lieutenant or a captain that we would look at in the, whether the police force or the military. And he's standing there, and he probably went to work, and he put his helmet on, he put his shield on, 
and he put his sword on, he put his cleats on, and he said, all right, honey, I'm going to work. It's just another day on Calvary's Hill. I'm going to hear people screaming and crying. I've got to block it out. I've got to harden my heart. And this happens sometimes in the police world and, and military. You block it out because you can't feel those emotions because you've got to do your job. So this guy goes up that hill, and at the end of the day, he says, Mark 15, 39, truly this man was the Son of God. He stood there while his men were nailing him to that cross. Jesus didn't spit at him. He didn't try to fight. He didn't try to get his last kick at one of those Roman soldiers. He laid there. He probably gave him his limbs so that they could be tied and pierced. When he was raised up and, and they were hurling insults at him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And then when, when the judgment of God came, when Jesus breathed his last, the Roman centurion saw all this, and in his mind it went around and around and around, and this hardened soldier said, truly this man was the Son of God. That's impressive. Whether it was Simon the Cyrenian, we talked about that last Sunday, whether it was the Roman centurion, whether it was the, one of the robbers, okay? These people were changed by Jesus Christ. And you know who else was changed? people today. Mossab Hassan Youssef, son of Hamas, next in command to take over daddy's business as a terrorist. He reads, he gets a hold of the Bible and Jesus says to love your enemies when this, from a little boy he was taught all his life to hate people, especially Jews. And it, it softened his heart. Love my enemies. He starts reading the Bible. He gets saved. He leaves the organization. And if you are in the Word long enough and you're exposed to Jesus long enough, you have to be changed too. One or two things can happen. We either harden our hearts and say, I can't hear it, I can't, I know what it's going to mean, I know what the consequences are, or we give in and we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. These are the only two things that can happen to us. And we'll see in the next few verses two other men changed by the Lord. Last few verses. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, remember John 3, John 3:16, who at first came to Jesus by night and also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen, with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were closet believers, and here they finally come out and show their devotion openly and publicly. They missed, they missed the bus. They weren't on the ball, but they said, you know what? We, just, we, we, can't, we can't be closet believers anymore. These guys were of the Jewish high council. They risked their reputation to come out and to show their honor. And yes, it was late, but as the saying goes, better late than never. There comes a point in time, usually it's sometimes when we're new believers. Some, some people come, you know, as soon as they get saved, I mean, they're just bold. Um, I got a, a brother who I love dearly. Uh, in this church, and he came to the Lord at the age of 60, and he, he just doesn't stop. I mean, he goes, I got, I got time I got to make up here, you know, so he's just right out of the box, 
But other people come to the Lord and they're timid and they're intimidated. Would you believe that when I was first a Christian, I was very intimidated. I didn't share my faith. It took a while. I was, I was these guys. They risked everything, though, to come out and show public devotion to the Lord. Would we? Have we? For some of us, is it about time that we do, starting today? So what effect has Jesus had on you and I? If you don't know the Lord, we want to give you an opportunity to receive him today. Don't harden your heart any longer. Open it up. Let him come in. You can trust him. If you know the Lord, then a few things must happen. We must change, we must commit, and we must sacrifice. Those two C words are usually dirty words, commitment and change. I don't like to change. Oh, I, I'd like for God to say, hey, Joe, you're, you're good. We don't have to do anything more with you. You're not going to struggle anymore. Life's good for Joey D. <laughs> Listen, I know better. I know what the scripture says. Nobody likes to change. We're creatures of habit. Commitment and sacrifice. Jesus committed to me. He sacrificed me, and I knew what I was before the cross. That's why I'm, this, is, this is the long haul for me. What about you? You know, in religion, I grew up in religion, and there was a lot of have-tos, and it turned me off. When I became a Christian, there was a, there's a lot more get-tos. I get to do this. Religion demands have to, but relationship evokes get to. So all of this in light of understanding the substitutionary death. Jesus paid the price for your sins on the cross. How will you live your life at this, from this point? Will you commit? If you don't know the Lord, will you continue to harden your heart? Or will you open up your heart to receive him? I don't care if you're really young. I don't care if you're really advanced in years. The Lord is calling you through his word. What will you do in receipt of this message? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you once again for your word. Your word is wonderful. Your word is beautiful. Your word is, is so organized and so detailed. And it's just sweet. It's just...